last night, if you were here, Timothy George, he used First um, Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. And there it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Now when he talked about last night, he predominantly talked about it as something on which you stand. And the preposition can be translated that way. It is translated. I don't think that's a wrong thing. The gospel is something we can stand on. It is the sure foundation upon which we rest all of our hope. But what I want to talk about this afternoon is the gospel in which we can stand. It's a gospel in which we locate ourselves. And located within that gospel, our minds then can be renewed to see the world from within the gospel. Okay? Now, in my role as a youth minister, I do my best to read what the kids are reading. Partly, I'll admit, I like the genre of young adult fiction. I find most of the books to be fairly entertaining. But the main reason why I read that literature is because I'm looking for trends about what is it that captures our imagination? What is it that captures the youth's imagination? And over several years of doing this, I've noticed a common thread that, read, that weaves its way through the plot lines of almost every single major blockbuster young adult fiction book. And it's this. You have an ordinary person who is living in their dreary, normal existence, who is either suddenly or over time, by fate or by circumstance, awakened to a much grander narrative that is around them. Think Harry Potter. Okay? We meet him in book one, living under the staircase. But then he discovers magic. And by the end of the book, you know, that's his world. He, he's come to take on Voldemort. Right? What we'll see is we'll see that as one book turns into a much larger series, the ordinary character, him or herself, becomes extraordinary. They're, they're transformed by this narrative and this, this much grander narrative of life in which they see. Think about Percy Jackson. If you read those books... He not only discovers the existence of the Greek pantheon, but he discovers that he's the son of Poseidon with the power of a god within him. And he must use that power to take on evil in the world, transforms his world. Bella Swan, in the Twilight books, she not only discovers the existence of vampires, but she becomes more herself as she becomes one of them. By the end of the time, she goes, sorry if there's spoilers in that, for those of you who haven't read that, if you're waiting on the movies. The list could go on and on. Same thing can be done for Star Wars in our generation, Lord of the Rings, you know, Frodo, Luke. Normal, all of a sudden extraordinary. Because their eyes are open to something much bigger. But what I want us to consider for the sake of this afternoon is what is it about that storyline, the ordinary becoming extraordinary, as their eyes are open to a much grander vision that so resonates? Not only with youth, because those books are mega popular with adults too. What is it about that that's so transformed, that so captivates us? And what I believe, what I would put to you, 
is that this plot line is so captivating because it hints at the truth of our reality. That we as humans are a part of a much grander narrative than normal existence, than our own lives. We are meant to be caught up into a reality that is much bigger than just us. Right? There is more to reality than just meets the eye. And I believe that this reality is what is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? It's the magic for Harry Potter. It's the pantheon for Percy Jackson. It's vampires for Bella Swan. It changes and shapes our very lives when we begin to see it. Our reality is radically transformed. But if you were to ask your youth to sum up the good news of the gospel, right? what's the gospel? What would it be? Yeah, right? At the heart of it, I think it comes down to this whole Jesus died so that I can go to heaven if I believe in him. Right? That's, that's kind of the heart of it. And I say, Amen. Praise God that that is true. Jesus did die for our sins. We do have the hope of heaven when we die. At least if we die before Jesus returns to remake the whole world, in which case we'll just be caught up and participate directly into the new heavens and the new earth. Eternity is real. But if this is all the gospel is for them, making a decision in the past about who Jesus is that primarily impacts just the future, then it is relatively irrelevant to your everyday life, to now. It's about the past and it's about the future, not really now. And so faith becomes kind of like a spiritual 401k, something that you, you, you might invest in now, but the returns are all later. Or it becomes fire insurance. You know, I paid my dues so that you know, if this hell thing's real, I, I don't have to worry about it. And this sort of Christianity, as you may have experienced, it easily dissolves into little more than moral therapeutic deism. Escape from the present circumstances and hope for the future. Just got to bide my time. Just got to bide my time. But I would put to you that this is not the gospel, this is not all of the gospel that we've been given. And it's this much larger gospel that I want to explore together this afternoon. Now, okay, I believe, using the words of another, that the Bible is the divinely authorized version of the gospel. And thus, it provides the necessary framework for understanding what God was doing in Jesus. I just want to get out my assumptions so you kind of know where I'm coming from when I approach this the way I do. But I also believe that just as Scripture interprets Scripture, that Jesus is real. And that he really exists in history. And that as a rational human, his words and his actions in his time on earth make sense in their historical context, as well as in their biblical context. And I believe the same to be true for all the authors and compilers of Scripture. They are real people living in real times with real messages for that time. Thus, it's important to keep in mind both the biblical narrative and the historical setting when approaching any passage in the Bible. Okay, with this in mind, I ask you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Mark. Mark chapter 1, 
verse 1. Now Mark begins his book with the words, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now for most of us, it's really easy to skim over such an opening. Familiarity with such language has made it benign. It's made it tame. But in their original context, these words were extremely dangerous and terrifyingly bold. Um, Wizard of Oz, you all familiar with that story? You know how Dorothy, she gets in that, um, the tornado, and all of a sudden she like ends up in odds, and she's like, we're not in Kansas anymore? Okay, this is the biblical gospel. We're not in Kansas anymore, is what he's saying. Because Mark was likely writing this gospel for a Roman audience. And the, as if you were here last night with Timothy George, you, you would have picked up on the fact that Mark is talking about Jesus in Caesar language. Right? Only Caesar gets a gospel in that culture. Everyone knew that the gospel was the good news concerning something to do with Caesar and his empire, a recent mil- military victory, a recent birth of a son. When these things happened, he would send out his evangelists, his witnesses into the world, to proclaim the gospel of his lordship. So also, Caesar gets the title son of God in that culture. By this point in history, Caesar had proclaimed himself to be a god. The coins of the day reflected his divinity. If you see him, they have little horns on their heads, showing that they're a level of their divinity. And the emperor cult, that was devoted to worshiping Caesar as the Son of God was one of the fastest growing religions of the day in the Roman Empire. So Caesar's gospel wasn't just about the future. When he sent his witnesses into a town to declare his lordship, it wasn't saying, hey, I'm Lord, just so you know one day down the road, you're going to need to know that. It impacted their present reality. The first Christians didn't invent these words, but they certainly knew what they were using. They certainly knew what they were doing when they were using these words in connection with Jesus and his kingdom. And calling Jesus the Christ, as Mark does also in 1.1, would have been unsettling to any Jews reading Mark's book. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name, as if his parents were Mary and Joseph Christ. That's not the case. As many of you know, it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah. And the title Messiah, Messiah, although understood in different ways, was a loaded one in the first century Jewish context. It literally means the anointed one, with both priestly and royal connotations. And based on the history and literature of that time period, there was a general expectation that the Messiah would be a conquering military figure who would overthrow Israel's enemy and reestablish the temple of Yahweh's presence amongst his people to its full glory. And through these actions, it was believed that the Christ would consummate Israel's return from exile, redeeming and restoring the people of God from the punishment of their sinful obedience, making peace with God and with the world. So at the outset of this gospel, Mark is saying not only that Jesus is Caesar's rival, but he's declaring Jesus to be the promised, conquering, covenant king. The one who reigns in Yahweh's name on behalf of God's covenant people. And if you look down 
in Mark chapter 1 to verses 14 and 15, we read there of Jesus beginning his public ministry, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. See, Jesus himself understood that the messianic kingdom of God was coming to earth in a new way through him. So the gospel, at its heart, is a message about a king and his kingdom. Right? You get that from both the Roman context and the Jewish context. But what sort of king is Jesus? And what's his kingdom? Right? These are the sort of questions that Mark's original audience would have been asking when they considered the gospel that Mark, you know, when he had, when they heard that we're not in Kansas anymore, they're trying to figure out where are we? That's the questions they'd be asking. And these are the questions that we need to be asking as children of the king, as heirs of this kingdom. Who is our father? If we've become a part of the family business, what is his business? What is he about? And to discern how Mark anticipates and answers these questions, we want to pay special attention to how Jesus demonstrates the gospel as history unfolds, as presented in the gospels. Right? He begins his ministry, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, but he goes on to do stuff, to say stuff. And obviously we only have time for the briefest of sketches, but my hope is that even such a brief sketch can begin to stir our imaginations to see the awesomeness of what the Father has done, is doing, and will one day do in Christ by his, the power of His Spirit. Okay? Now, many contemporary readers of the biblical gospel seem perplexed by their contents. Maybe your youth are the same way. I went and talked through Mark, and you know, a lot of people might be, he, he just does a lot of weird things. Why does Jesus do and say so many weird things? And why did the authors choose to recount the narrative in this way? And their confusion is understandable. If you believe that the gospel is primarily about people going to heaven when you die, leaving this world forever behind, then it does seem kind of weird that Jesus is so preoccupied with casting out demons, with healing people. It's kind of like putting a band-aid on a gunshot wound. Right, if what we really need is the cross, why don't they just skip to it? Why did they waste all, why did they, I mean, paper was limited. Why did they spend all that time telling these stories if what we need is the gospel? The fact that Jesus' ministry in the gospel is so out of step with popular understandings of the gospel should warn us to the insufficiency of such conceptualizations. Do you understand what I'm saying there? If we think the gospel is one thing, and then we read the gospels and we're surprised by what's in them, then there's probably something wrong or insufficient with our conceptualization of the gospel. Yet when we remember that the gospel is about a conquering Messiah king and his kingdom, a Caesar and his growing empire, the shape of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John begin to make sense. What sort of king is Jesus? He's a Messiah King. He's the promised solution to all that God in the Old Testament has shown to be wrong with the world. And what's his kingdom? Well, it's the realm where God's promised redemption for this world is found. 
where the effects of the fall are undone, where life is restored and evil is named and conquered under God's just rule. I'll unpack that. But if Jesus is being presented as the solution of what's wrong in the world, it's good for us to remember, biblically speaking, what's actually wrong with the world. And for that, we need to go back to the beginning, the in the very beginning. If you if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis one and three. But I'll I'll be more moving through them quickly. Okay, if you remember back to Genesis one, there the stage for the rest of history is set. We see in chapter one a Creator God bringing order out of chaos. God creates the heavens and the earth by His word, with His breath. Your breath being also spirit. You see a triune image in there. Moving to the second chapter, we read specifically about an intimately involved creator God forming man of the dust, planting a special garden on earth for him to tend, and he completes the image of God in humanity with the creation of woman to help subdue the earth as a wise steward. And so we begin to see in these opening chapters, I would put to you, that life, biblically speaking, is found in three relationships for humanity being rightly ordered. The relationship between self and God, with God at the center, between the self and others, Adam and Eve and one another, side by side, alongside each other, and between the self and creation, the rest of creation, so you would get there both the physical and the spiritual realms, as wise stewards and subduers of creation and harbingers of this life and having been and having been this life in the garden and having been given the divine blessing to be fruitful and multiply as image bearers of God theoretically this life would have extended to cover the whole earth as they tended to the garden of God's unique presence on earth and would have spread to cover the whole earth. Tragically, however, the slice is lost. The serpent, which mysteriously is already in the garden, and is a part of God's creation that humanity is called to subdue, right? that's why I said both physical and metaphysical, or the spiritual, because they are meant to subdue that creation in order to maintain this life that they had been given in their relationships, he tempts Eve. And what does he temper, tempt her with? Well, putting herself at the center. You can be like God. You know, right, right now you're in the image of God, and yeah, that's great, but man, God, think about it. And she thinks about it. Adam's right there with her, and they both succumb. They fail in their task, and in rejecting God's way for the relationships, they reject life. And they die, just as God had warned them in Genesis 2.17. But if you think back to the story, when they take of that fruit, do they keel over dead? No, they don't. Not medically speaking. The narrative continues with them as active and living characters. Adam, Genesis tells us in Genesis 5.5, lives 930 years. So what was the death that they experienced in that day of their sin. It was the death of relationships. 
It was the frustration of their relationship with God, their relationship with each other, and their relationship with the creation. Adam and Eve feel the need to hide from God. They're forced to leave the garden, the place where God uniquely dwells on earth. That relationship, it's frustrated. Adam and Eve feel the need to hide their nakedness from each other. You know, when God comes, hey, what happened? And she made me do it. And in Genesis 4, we're confronted with the story of Cain murdering his brother Abel as if we needed any definitive proof that the relationship between human and human has died. It's been frustrated by sin. And lastly, there's enmity between humanity and creation. The ground as a result of the, call, of the fall is cursed. Any of you garden? Brother, we know the ground is cursed. <laughs> and a painful war has broken out between Adam's seed and the Satan. He'll bruise your heel. You'll crush his head. Frustration in these relationships. And from Genesis 3 onward, the narrative is of those dead trying to find new life. It's a story of sin ruining relationships. In the words of Paul, just as sin came into the world through one man, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's Romans 5:12. But Genesis 3 onward is also the story of a love, loving God putting his creation to right, to right with judgment, redemption, and reconciliation. There has to be reconciliation if the problem is relationships. Immediately in Genesis 3, God doesn't abandon humanity. Pointing to the need for the shedding of blood for forgiveness, God seemingly kills animals to make garments of skins for Adam and Eve. They had covered themselves in fig leaves. He covers themselves in animal skins. And despite the profound sinfulness and the rebellion of humanity from Genesis 4 to 11, you know, flood, babel, it's just a downward cycle. In Genesis 12, out of the blue, God calls Abraham to be the father of a covenant people, Israel. And to this people, through Moses, God gives the law. To this people, he gives the prophets. He gives the writings. Now, in many circles today, particularly reform circles, of which I'm a part, the law of the Old Testament is given a very negative tone. Almost as if the law was something evil. Yet this fundamentally misunderstands the law and the goodness of God for giving it to his people. What does the law primarily do? Well, it teaches humanity how to live in right relationships. It teaches us, how should we live in relationship to God? Right? That relationship is broken. It teaches us, this is, this is life. How should we live to one another? Right? There's laws that regulate human-to-human interaction. Again, those relationships have been dead. He shows the way to life. How do we deal with things like mold? You know, you, you know those, are, those are the ones you catch like, well, mold, what's this? this is weird. Well, our relationship with creation has been frustrated. The law teaches us how do we live in relationship with the creation. Okay? It shows fallen humanity a way to live. It's a good gift. This is why in, Matthew's, in Matthew 5:17, Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, 
but to fulfill it. Right? He comes to give new life. He comes to take what the law and what it was meant to do in giving life, and he does it. And in him, he reconciles us to God, to each other, to creation, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. We'll get back there. Ultimately, though, Israel fails in its task. Like Adam and Eve, they are exiled from what was meant to be redemptive space, the promised land. It was the place where the temple of God's unique dwelling on earth was found. And they're exiled from it. Israel, like Adam, chose to follow their own ways rather than God's life-filled way. Idolatry is the key sin that's at the heart of what they're doing. Right? They're setting themselves as... They're setting their wills above God's. Thus, the law, as Paul says, only served to increase humanity's trespass. It showed the way to life, but it showed that we can't get it on our own. But praise God that Paul also says at the end of Romans 5.20 that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so making our way back to the Gospels where we started, Jesus comes with God's abundant grace. He comes as another Adam. He comes as true Israel, the Messiah, to do what humanity was created to do, but that no human before him could rightly do. He comes to subdue creation, to conquer evil, and to bring true life to this dead creation. So then, when we read the Gospels, we see Jesus doing and saying precisely what a Messiah seeking to embody the purpose of God's chosen people would do. He's devoted to conquering humanity's true enemy, evil, and its effects on the world. He comes to bring new life to people living in the death of the fall. Think about the ministry of Jesus. When he heals the sick, when he he encourages the hopeless, he's taking on natural evil, and it's a physical evil, and its effects in the world. By resisting temptation, by casting out demons, he's taking on metaphysical evil, and its effects in the world. When he forgives sin, and he combats false teaching, he's taking on moral evil, and its effects in the world. And then ultimately... As his ministry as the Messiah climaxes on the cross, Jesus, as a conquering king, lets the fullness of metaphysical evil do its worst to him. Try and kill him so that they can take his throne. He lets them try to usurp him. He takes on the fullness of physical evil as he is tortured. An excruciatingly painful death. You, know, you ask kids, why, you know, they ask them, well, why did it have to be so painful? And sometimes we'll say, oh, because our sin is so bad. Pain is not natural. It's normal, but it's not natural. It's evil. And he comes to take it upon himself. And it's not just physical pain. How many of you have ever been rejected by a friend? He had poured years into these disciples, and they left him. Do you think that hurt? The fullness of natural evil, physical evil, 
And then the one we most commonly think of, he does, he wars with the fullness of moral evil, fully taking upon himself the sin of his people. Praise God, the story doesn't end there. Because three days later, the Father with the Spirit raises Jesus, the Son of God, from the dead. And he gives him a throne in a name that is above all names. So that in Jesus Christ, God has conquered natural evil with the inauguration, the beginning of the new creation. We can now cry with Paul, O death, where is your sting? Natural evil is conquered. In Jesus Christ, God has conquered metaphysical evil. By as Paul says in Colossians 2.15, he's disarmed the rulers and the authorities, putting them to open chain, triumphing over them in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension conquered metaphysical evil and in Jesus Christ God has conquered praise God moral evil forgiving us all our trespasses canceling the record of debt that stood against us in our sin nailing it to the cross as Paul says in Colossians 2 13 and 14 in the resurrection and the ascension Jesus messianic kingdom is vindicated as victorious over evil in all its forms Because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, evil can have no lasting victory. Think back to Romans 8. God works all things for glory. He can do that because he is the Messiah King who has conquered on the cross, been vindicated as victorious in the resurrection, and been given authority to implement his kingdom with the throne of God. And he's at work in the world by his Spirit to bring about God's kingdom on earth. This is the story that's to shape us. This is what's going on around us. It's a story of life coming in a new way into our relationships here on earth. And praise God that the gospel continues. One day our victorious Messiah King will return to bring fullness to what he accomplished on the cross to make all of creation what God has always intended it for it to be. A place where true life covers all of creation. If you turn to Revelation 21, we're going to the bookends of Scripture today. We get the story there of our victorious Messiah King who's going to return to bring to fullness what he accomplished on the cross. Remember that as we read this, this is the end towards which we're moving. Like Harry Potter, he didn't know how book seven ended. We get a picture of how it ends. And this is how it ends. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. If you're familiar with biblical imagery, the sea, particularly in apocalyptic literature, represents the chaos of evil. It's no more. Whereas Christ's first coming rendered it glassy before the Lord, in Revelation 4 or 5, ultimately ineffective, nothing to worry about, not chaotic. Now, with the second coming, it's gone. Forever. It's not just conquered, it's obliterated. John continues in verse 3. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The marriage of heaven and earth that was tasted in the garden, 
that was foreshadowed in the tabernacle and the temple, that was embodied in the incarnation, and inaugurated with the sending of the Spirit, will one day come to its fullness. The picture here in Revelation is of true and full life everywhere. And so we read, as we would expect in verse 3, God will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. We will know fully the reconciliation with God as parents. We will know fully our reconciliation with each other as family. And the pain, the sorrow, and the death of the old creation has passed away in the restored new creation. Right? This is our hope. And this is our inheritance as adopted children of God. This is the kingdom that we inherit. And we are told that with the Spirit's coming, it has broken into. that This end-time vision that we're giving in Revelation 21, where life is everywhere, in relationships and evil is gone, has broken into our reality with the coming of the Spirit. So that, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that whole passage is just one of my favorites, says that if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We live with already, but not yet fully, resurrection, new creation life in Christ. This is our reality. This is why the call consistently from Paul is to put off the old self, the old creation, the old man, under the old way of life, and to put on the new self. The new creation us who is being conformed to the image of Jesus. And remember, the resurrected new creation Jesus. By grace, through faith, we are called to put off death and to put on new life in Christ. This is the grace that he's given to us. But to do this, as Paul puts it in Romans 12, we need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds around the gospel of Jesus as Messiah, Lord, and Savior, and Redeemer, by devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, as Luke books it in Acts 2.42. If you read that gimmick's books, it'll talk more about it. But as the Spirit walks, works, as the Spirit works through the Scripture, as He works through Christian fellowship, the sacraments and prayer, His grace, by faith, shapes our thoughts and our actions. Like discovering magic did for Harry Potter. Like discovering the Greek pantheon did for Percy Jackson. Like vampires did for Bella Swan. So the gospel does for us. It needs to be said, though it may be obvious, this isn't easy. And it's not something that we can do it's not something we can do for the youth that we work with. We can't make ourselves a new creation. We ourselves can't overcome evil in any of its forms. But again, the gospel is good news. Because God is gracious. And we don't have to do this alone. 
We have Jesus. He's given us His Spirit. We have the Scriptures, the sacraments, and prayer. And brothers and sisters, praise God, He's also given us each other so that we share this story together as the family of God. I want to close by looking at one of our brothers from the early church to give us a sense of, of what this actually looks like. Because if you've been tracking along with me so far, we're a part of the family business. And what has God been about in Jesus? What's he doing in terms of life? He's restoring life to what three relationships? Our relationship with God, with who at the center? God at the center. Right? And the relationship with others as ourselves, right? How do you sum up the whole law and the prophets? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, two branches of life. And then also with, with creation. Right? As new creations. Okay? So if that's our family business, what does that mean we're to be about? The gospel as ambassadors of, if you remember 2 Corinthians 5, right? you knew Christ, you're a new creation, you've been reconciled to God, and I made you ambassadors of... What? This is what I always do with my youth. It starts with an R and rhymes with reconciliation. Right? Reconciliation. Between relationships, because that's the issue, right? God in Christ is about reconciling us, not just to God, but He reconciles us to each other. He reconciles us to the creation. That's what we're to be about. It makes sense for Christians to be things like doctors, to be things like farmers, to be things like construction workers, to, to, to bring beauty to this world. That's a part of our redemption. Art is Christian. It, it's just as a discipline, is a Christian endeavor. Now, obviously, when it seeks to tell the truth, the whole idea of bringing beauty to creation, right, that, that's a garden. I mean, gardens, they're beautiful. Right? Beauty is inherent to what we're supposed to do. But anyways, that's off track. What I want to do is I want to look at Onesimus to see, just to remember that this is real. Like these people who are telling this, this isn't, it sounds pie in the sky, but now we're going to get our hands really dirty like they had to do. Okay? Onesimus was sent by Paul to encourage the Colossians with a letter to Colossae. And my prayer is that he will do so for us as well. We meet an SMS in the final greetings of Paul's letter to Colossians in chapter 4. Now, whereas we're probably supremely unaware of his presence until we get to that chapter where it says, an SMS you know, is with this letter, the Colossians would have been supremely aware that an SMS is there. Not only because, as Paul says in verse 9, that he was one of them, but because, as we learn from Paul's letter to Philemon, Onesimus was a runaway slave. He ran away from Colossae. Now, because slaves were central to the Roman economic system, anything that would upset the master-slave balance of society was strongly discouraged by the ruling elites of the day. The Roman historian Tacitus describes the situation from Rome in AD 61. Now, most scholars agree that the letter to Colossians and Philemon are written by Paul in Rome around AD 61. Okay, so this is contemporary events. Tacitus describes the situation. Apparently, a Roman city official was murdered by one of his 400 slaves. Now, the customs of the day dictated that all 400 slaves should be executed. 
But the law was nebulous in such a massive case, where many were proven beyond doubt to be innocent. Thus, there was a debate in the Senate upon what should happen to these 400 slaves, the, the ramifications of which would have touched everyone in the Roman Empire to one extent or another, because that relationship was so foundational to their economy, to their way of life. I want to read to you an excerpt from Tacitus's writings. It's in the Annals, because it gives us a picture about what was going on and how volatile. I want to I want to set up the context of what Paul's asking them to do in the SMS with just how hard, how messy this was that he's getting into. Tacitus here is um, he's recording the words of Cassius, who was a senator who who um, ultimately defended the majority position to have the slaves executed. He says, Our ancestors were suspicious of their slaves, even though the slaves were born right, under their, right on their own farms and in their own homes, and from birth received the affection of their masters. But nowadays, our household slaves represent many different nations with a variety of customs, with strange religions, or no religion at all. Likely a jibe of the Christians. You might not know this, but the earlier Christians were being accused, they, they were labeled atheists because they denied the Greek pantheon. They denied Caesar as a god, so they were called atheists. Kind of ironic. He goes on to say, You cannot control these dregs of society except through fear. Yes, it's true that innocent will suffer, but every punishment that is used to provide a negative example contains some element of injustice, but the individual injustices are outweighed by the advantages to the community as a whole. Tacitus goes on to say, no one dared to oppose Cassius' statements. Although some people voiced their disagreement by reminding him of the large number of the female or of the young slaves or of the majority who had protested their undoubted innocence. However, the senators who favored execution prevailed. Okay, so, but this is the part I want you to understand. A large angry mob with rocks and torches at first prevented the carrying out of the execution order. Then Nero chastised the people in official edict and lined with troops the whole route along which those condemned to death were taken for execution. I mean, do you understand what's going on in that culture? How volatile an issue slavery was? The lengths through which people would go to, to protect the order? I mean, angry mobs executing 400 people. Right? This is this is huge stuff. And something like running away from your master was considered a major offense in the Roman world, punishable by crucifixion, being burned alive, or being literally fed to the lions if you were caught. It's unlikely that in the church in Colossae, Anesimus was the only slave. And he certainly wasn't the only slave in Colossae. News of his return would have spread rapidly and there would have been extreme pressure upon Philemon, his owner, and this church to set an example of Onesimus by treating him as an outcast, an enemy of the state, and ultimately to turn him over to be killed. As such, this is the part I want us to understand, as such, his presence required action from the congregation. They had to make a decision. Whose narrative of reality were they going to live under? In the culture's eyes, Onesimus was a fool to return after running away, but even a bigger fool would accept him back. 
treat him like an equal. Such a public action would be deeply subversive and very unsafe in that world, striking at the very foundations of their economy. We know how big the economy is, right? And yet, as we know from the letters to Philemon, Paul encouraged Onesimus to return. Onesimus freely made the choice to return. And Paul's sincere hope and confidence was that Philemon and the Colossian church would accept Onesimus with open arms, viewing him, even as Paul calls him, a beloved brother in Christ. But why would Paul, Onesimus, Philemon, and the Colossian Christians make such a costly and a dangerous choice? Brothers and sisters, it's the gospel reality in which they were living, in which they stood. To one extent or another, they experienced the gospel that forgives and redeems sinners who don't deserve forgiveness or redemption, but who, as the family business, pursues forgiveness, pursues redemption, not just with God, but with one another. Does it, do, any of you, do any of your kids in youth group ever get in tests with each other, fights? Do they ever have problems in their relationships? The gospel says we are to seek to be reconciled in those relationships, to pursue redemption in them. As ambassadors of the gospel that redeems and forgives sinners, they knew that they were to pursue reconciliation, to pursue life in the family of God. And this is the part I want us to hear. Even at great personal cost and public scorn, talk about an unpopular message. Try selling that one to your youth. See, they had entered the kingdom of Jesus. And they knew that in his kingdom, we are to follow the path of the king who, because of love, emptied himself, became like nothing, humbling himself to the uttermost, even to the point of death on the cross, paraphrasing Philippians 2. And all for the sake of reconciliation with those who deeply wronged him. to give life to those who were dead in their sin, their sin being an offense and a rebellion against him. That's our king. That's the family business. To sacrifice our pride, our humility, our what we would want to exalt ourselves, to humble ourselves, for what ends? To go about the family business of reconciliation. Even while we were his enemies, God loved us. Does this love shape our relationships? Do we know this gospel of grace in Jesus? Is it shaping our hearts, our minds, our ministries? See, Jesus came that we might have abundant life, even now as a foretaste of what will one day be in fullness forever. May we as children... And as ambassadors of the king, claim and proclaim the gospel of evil's defeat and of new life in Christ. And may we, as God's children, learn to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Here, let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours are the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Do you have questions? We start a little bit late, so I went long. I, I feel like I just like opened up a fire hose and. And it's what locates you within the kingdom. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And then the other thing, too, is and this is, um, I wrote a little like, blog entry about why the book of John is such a critical text to teach kids this age. And it's because you have to help them understand the implications and the benefits of what Jesus did on the cross right now. Like, they are so geared towards instant gratification. Like, think about how different the world is from Emily. I'm like 32 years old. I, you know, but when, you know, when I was a kid growing up, if I wanted a movie, it was like, hey mom, will you take me down to the movie store to go get a, a VHS? And I was like, yeah, I can do that tomorrow. And then you go down there and you get it, you bring it back and you watch it. You know, it wasn't like Netflix, boom, I'm going to get whatever I want right now, you know? And Without like, your parents knowing what you're watching. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, you know, truly. And, and, you know, we're like Alabama football. I'd have to wait for the newspaper to come and read it, or I'd have to wait for the news at five. Now I've got, I can get online and read 20 different publications. I can, you know, it's just like, I can get wh- exactly what I want right now. And these kids are so conditioned to that. I'm like, you know, you talk about going to heaven with God. That is not, you know, like, graduating from high school is hardly on their radar screen. Mm-hmm. It's just like, what now, 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 now? And so I think like, uh, um, I think that uh, one of the things that you had to offer there is when you think about the gospel uh, in terms of kingdom, like you right now are being enlisted into something that is bigger than you. And you are right now an inheritor. Uh, you know, you're an heir of of you know God's grace and you know this I new identity as a new creation. Yeah. And also like things like missions and this is where it's so can be so big of our 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 ministry is. Uh, I feel like we have been very like teaching and doctrine oriented, like we're just gonna teach the kids and give them the doctrine and give them the answers and that's gonna you know result in disciples. But there's uh, that's that's incomplete in the sense of the gospel in the context of the kingdom well, fellowship is then a part, an outpouring of the gospel. And missions are a outpouring of the gospel, like serving the poor, seeking justice. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, it just kind of brings it all <coughs> together. Um, especially the community part. Especially with these kids, because that's, that's like the thing they care about the most, is relationships, particularly with friends. Well, and you think about even what we just prayed, like it's just so central to the Lord's prayer. I mean, what is it we're praying for? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? In heaven when I die. On earth as it is in heaven. This is the prayer the Lord is giving us because he knows he's going to fulfill it. That that is what he's about. 
He's about redeeming and restoring this space, which will one day come to its fullness. I think, too, it's important for them to realize that personal identification, that reconciliation that they have received and that they have been fed by Christ's body and blood at that table. So that then, you, you know, it's hard for me to forgive you if I haven't been forgiven myself. Yeah. You know, if I haven't experienced that and made that personal, you know, yeah. it's hard to go feed the poor if I don't know what it means. You know, I don't have to be physically hungry, but I've hungered and I've been fed and I have that nourishment. Yeah. That reminds me of like passages in John that we find Jesus saying, "A new commandment I give you: Go love one another as I have loved, loved you. you. Right. I am sending you right. as the Father has sent me." And so, yeah, just that reflecting back yeah. as the motivation. And again, forgive when you're carrying this huge rock on your shoulder that you know you're scared that you haven't even been forgiven. How can I possibly forgive and you? This is. A, where it's super helpful for me in talking about that and thinking about that as a messy, real, concrete life example is Paul and Peter. Paul and the, I mean, who was Paul? Who did he who who did he oversee the murder of? Specifically, Stephen. Who commissioned Stephen? Who trained up Stephen? Who poured their life into Stephen? Whose friend was Stephen? The apostles. Paul murdered, oversaw the murder of their friend in cold blood. Now what would we do if someone who had murdered one of our friends walked into the door? Justice! Right? You pull out the gun. My church loves guns. I never... Maybe I should... (laughs) They love guns. And one of the guns that's there is, is they had, we have this bolts and barbecue thing. I'm from up north. And I, it's just, this still blows me away. This bolts and barbecue, they bring their guns. And one of the most popular guns at the last one was called the Judge. It shoots two normal bullets and then the last. Bullets and barbecue? Bullets and barbecue, because that's what we do. You have bullets and you eat barbecue. But it's called the Judge. We're in rural Georgia. But the first three bullets are like, you know, normal ones that'll like warn them. And then the second two are shotgun things that'll take them out. So it's called the judge. But that's what we want, right? Judge. Justice. So when Paul, after three years, goes back to Jerusalem, I mean, first of all, what did that take? To go back to Jerusalem. And we know it was hard because he only saw a couple people the first time. Right? Peter and James. Took three years. Then he goes away. I think it takes another ten years, if I remember right, before he goes back. But eventually, by the time Paul writes, no, sorry, Peter writes, first Peter, I think it is, He refers to Paul as a beloved brother. What he says is really confusing sometimes, but he's a beloved brother. What but the gospel could do that? How can you justly forgive someone for murdering your friend in an unjust manner unless you understand what happened at the cross? What Jesus did, what he accomplished, and what we as those located in that gospel are to be about. Right? I mean, how would that transform our relationships? Well, you know, what's forgiveness in our most of our youth groups? Well, I'll forgive them, but it doesn't mean I have to like them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll love them, but I don't have to like them. How unchristian is that? <laughs> I'll love them, but it doesn't mean I need to be their friend. Are you kidding? Your family. 
You don't have that option. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. So again, that's that whole uh, Paul. He, he's just a what a guy. But again, it, you know, it's getting them to feel that love before you can have them love someone that they yeah. Conflict. And again, and they can't understand that love until they understand the depths of their sin. Yeah. So again, you know, moral therapeutic decent type gospel, morality gospel that says, yeah, you're mostly okay, but let's try and you know, polish you up and present you to the Father. It's just, it's never going to... Because then you can just polish up your forgiveness and present it. You know, okay. You know, I've, I've, I've made up with... I just don't want to be in the same room with them, but we've made up. You know, they're my Facebook friend again. You know, I, it's just the gospel's realer than that. And it's really harder than that. And it's really so much messier than we sometimes think. Just how messy the gospel was in its original context. What it was calling them to do was just supreme. Like we think, oh man, their lives are so hard. And they are. They're really messy. But that's precisely what the gospel has come to do. To give us hope. And, and, and life as a foretaste of what will one day come in fullness. Because that's the end towards which we're going. The trajectory of this world is new creation. In which this true, true life lives. In relationships with God, with each other, and with creation. So, sorry, again, it... Ask, I, you got like two, three more minutes. Can I ask one more question? Sure. What do you think the impl- So you talked about reconciliation with creation. Um, yes. What, do you think that has any implications as far as uh, how we talk about environmentalism? I do. Mm-hmm. I do. I think that we have a responsibility to that. I think it... Um, both environmentalism and I would say, too, for, for how we react in the spiritual realm. Like, we kind of go around pretending angels don't exist. Or, like, if we do, we kind of think of them... Well, maybe this is just me. I grew up in a where, it, you know, I've had to re-really reshape my imagination to think towards that. But in the creation mission trips, again, I used to think it was just like okay, it was kind of pointless that we were fixing up the staircase. What I really needed to be doing was doing like a VBS or teaching someone about Jesus. But they're both different sides of life. They need the truth that can reconcile them to God, but they also need the life of creation. That's why medical mission is. That makes a lot of sense. That's a holistic... We come to seek, yes, that they be reconciled with God, but also we come to, you know, reconcile... Yeah. There's different... You know, not everyone agrees with this. But, like, you know, I don't think that this earth is a mistake. That God's going to just one day blow up, scratch, you know, like a potter in the clay. It all messes. I don't think he just throws it out. Like, I think what you get, the picture in the Gospels and then in Revelation is, is of God judging the evil within it, letting the evil kind of exhaust itself, and then getting rid of it. But, but what you have is, you know, the, when I think of the new heavens and the new earth, it's earth coming down. It's, these, it's heaven and earth joining. It's this earth being the throne room of God, transformed. And so I think the redemptive work that we do in some mysterious way, serves an eternal purpose. It's a, when when um, Paul in, gosh, 1 Corinthians 3, talks about building on the foundation of Christ with hay, wood, or stubble, or precious metals. Like, I, I actually, and I, and I could be wrong here, so I want to just put that out, but where I'm at right now in reading the Scriptures is that there's a part of that which God says, yes, that's life. Now let me take that by my Spirit, located in Christ, and really show it what it's supposed to be. It's like when he's creating the 
creating us in his image and it's that movement that we go through I think he does the same thing with creation that he is bringing that creation into the world of heaven a new creation coming together is it yeah. work in progress well, and I think you know part of, part of what leads me to this is like you look at like if he was going to reject the old creation in itself and just kind of destroy it it seems like you'd still have a body in the tomb Right? Because he would have been like, new body, finally, could get rid of that one. Now let's get about to what I always meant to do, which is, you know, part A, not so good, but there's going to be part B, you know, iPhone 2.0 or whatever it is. Right? But no, what does he do? He, that, that tomb is empty. Why? Because he transforms it apart. And this is the importance of God as being the firstborn of the new creation. A part of this physical earth has already been transformed that's our hope of new creation is that the tomb is empty not just that Jesus rose from the dead and there's new life but that this we will one day have a body like his like these things and, and there's going to be great continuity right? They, they somehow knew it was Jesus but sometimes he didn't Im- immediately understand it was Jesus and, and he could eat and he could be touched but he could also walk through walls so there's, there's continuity there's discontinuity but but the important thing is it's a, a part of this creation this old creation has been made new in Christ so sorry sure Lord God we cannot even I mean if we're honest we can't even begin to get our heads around what you're doing and Lord, but for grace, but for your revelation to us in your word, and Lord, to us by your spirit in our hearts, we really have no hope. We can't transform our own minds. Lord, in our ministries, we can't transform the minds of our youth, Lord God, but Lord, we need it. Lord, send your spirit who would work in us the power of your kingdom. Lord, we really meant it when we asked that would your kingdom come, Lord, would you will be done here on earth, in our lives, in our relationships. Lord, help us, those of us who are married, to be have right relationships with our wives, with our children, with our, with our husbands, depending on what it is. Lord, with boyfriends, with girls, with, with friends, with, with family, Lord God, our relationships are so messy and so in need of your redemption. Lord, impress upon our hearts how much you love us how deeply you have forgiven us, Lord, that we might so also, by your Spirit, Lord, experience forgiveness with others, that our relationships might be reconciled. And Lord, even with this creation, Lord, you said that in Christ we already are a new creation, that we're children, your children even now, even though what we, when they will be, we don't get fully, but Lord, even now come. Lord, we long eagerly with creation for you to reveal us as your children, Lord, that we might know the fullness of your new creation life. Right relationship with you as Abba Father, right relationship with our brothers and sisters as beloved brothers and sisters. Lord, right relationship with this world in which there's no more hurt. There's no more ugliness. There's no more sorrow. There's no more sadness. There's no more chaos. But all has been made right in Christ. Lord, come quickly, for we are in desperate need. In Jesus' name, amen.